Isaiah chapter 12. And in that day thou shalt say, I will give thanks unto thee, O Jehovah, for though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for Jehovah, even Jehovah, is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, Give thanks unto Jehovah, call upon his name, declare his doings among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto Jehovah, for he hath done excellent things. Let this be known in all the earth. Cry aloud and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great in the midst of thee is the Holy One of Israel. Let us pray. I make no apology whatever for considering this book as the Gospel of Isaiah. And I think I mentioned already that these first 12 chapters are significant and definitive, defining a portion of God's Word in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah brings his words to a close in these first 12 chapters with this psalm of Isaiah. I'm taking a lot of liberties tonight, uh, speaking of the gospel of Isaiah and in Isaiah and his penning this psalm or song of Isaiah, chapter 12. We looked uh, last time seems like at least a month ago, we looked last time at uh, the, the first chapter primarily, we had to consider what Isaiah was referring to, what is being referred to here when we read these words, for thou wast angry. And we looked at chapter one of Isaiah, and we're not gonna go through that again, but I would just sum it up, I think it is summed up succinctly in the second verse of the first chapter where God says these words, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Jehovah has spoken. Here's his complaint. For I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. I think that each and every one of us can relate to that personally, individually, 
unless perhaps we were regenerated at a very young age. We can relate to that. The whole concept, our Father in heaven complaining, the creator of all men, the creator of mankind, the creator of all things, saying, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. I'm not talking about any experience of our children rebelling against us. I'm talking about ourselves rebelling against our Father in heaven, rebelling against the one who had created us, the one who has given us all things, provided all things, provided us with life, and yet we rebelled against him. We were nourished, whether we knew it or not, by God. We were brought up as children by God, whether we knew it or not at the time. And we did rebel against him. These words in Isaiah chapter 1 can be spoken against each and every one of us to one degree or another. But in one degree or another, we are all guilty of rebelling against God, of shaking our fist in his faith, face. We rebelled against him. So in chapter 12, we have just read, and in that day thou shalt say, I will give thanks unto thee, O Jehovah. What is the prophet calling us to give thanks for? For though thou wast angry, he goes on, though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. Thine anger is turned away. We see here both the, the anger that we looked at and the cause of the anger that we had rebelled against God, our Creator, and by His grace, our Father in heaven, we had rebelled. We brought about that anger through our, our rebellion, through our activities, through our wicked lives. And He was angry with us. And yet we read further, Thine anger is turned away. I will give thanks unto thee, for thine anger is turned away. As faith must be accompanied by repentance. It's been well said, and it's rather trite, but faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. And theologians can discuss and, and get into into debates and so on and question which comes first. I don't think it matters. God brings about that which is to be first. He brings it about first, whether we recognize it or not. But they are inseparable. Faith must be accompanied by repentance. So as faith must be accompanied by repentance, so the good news must be accompanied by the bad news. We looked at the bad news last time. The work of God, the Holy Spirit. Christ told his disciples and in the scriptures where it's recorded, he tells us as well. The work of God, the Holy Spirit convicts in respect of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me, he said. Of righteousness because I go to the Father and ye behold me no more. 
of judgment because the prince of this world hath been judged. God's anger against sin must be brought to bear on the mind and more importantly on the heart. We must each of us be brought to that place or have been brought to that place where the word of God says thou wast angry with me. And that's what we find in Isaiah's gospel here in this song of praise and thanksgiving that though God was angry with us he says thine anger is turned away. The Spirit convicts of sin, as we've said. Know assuredly that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom ye have crucified, Peter preached to that crowd, to all those hearers, that huge audience at Pentecost, convicting of sin, the Spirit of God convicting of sin as Peter proclaimed that this one that you have crucified, this Jesus, God hath made him both Lord and Christ. God has a controversy with us. Or as my English friends say, a controversy. God has a controversy with men, with sinners, because of their sin. These men cried out, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter told them what they must do. Repent ye and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ unto the remission of your sins. Be reconciled to God, the scriptures scream at us. Be reconciled to God. There is forgiveness with him. And that's what we see in this first line of Isaiah's song. For though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. Isaiah's gospel here. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. What a, an abundance of goodness and joy. It's no wonder that singing is the result of this. Praising is the result. It's the same gospel that Peter proclaimed at Pentecost. It's the same gospel that Philip preached to the eunuch. And he pointed him to Christ, even as Peter pointed out that God had made him both Lord and Christ, this one whom you've crucified. And the eunuch, you remember in Acts 8, asked Philip, who, who, does, who does the prophet speak of, of himself or another? He was reading in Isaiah. He was reading perhaps in the very 53rd chapter of Isaiah. But Philip went from there and preached Jesus Christ to that eunuch. And he was brought to repentance, we can assume, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and said, what does hinder me from being baptized? And so Philip took him down to the water and baptized him. But Philip preached the same gospel that Peter preached, the same gospel that we have here in Isaiah, in the same gospel that Paul pronounced to the Philippian jailer, what must I do? Men come to an end of themselves. 
so often. I realize that everyone hasn't experienced the same um, radical conversion as Paul on the Damascus Road. And we don't want to pretend that that's some kind of a pattern that we all have to emulate. But there still needs to be repentance and faith joined together, hand in hand. That's the gospel. Repent and believe. How many times did Christ say that? Peter, repent and be baptized. That's the response to the what must we do. That's the response to God's anger. Just a brief overview of this 12th chapter again. What we have in these 12 chapters is, as we've already mentioned, there are exhortations in, in abundance in the first chapter and warnings of divine judgments. But there are, mingled with that, there are predictions slash promises, predictions of better days and the coming of the Messiah. And this coincides very well with that statement that Edward Young made that I mentioned last time in his title that he would place over these 12 chapters, The Crisis and the Messiah. In these 12 chapters, we have the crisis, the problem, the anger of God against our sin, the crisis, but the Messiah. We could, I think, transliterate it fairly, honestly, to say the crisis and the Christ. The crisis and the Christ in these 12 chapters. Again, the bad news, but the good news. The crisis, the problem, but the good news, the glad tidings about God's anger being turned away. This gratitude in this psalm of Isaiah, this gratitude is expressed when it's written to Jehovah, not because he was angry. They're not thanking him because they were angry, he was angry, but they're thanking him because he had been angry, but yet turned his wrath aside. He turned his anger away. That's what they're praising him for and thanking him for, turning his anger away. And this is what the gratitude is expressed with regard to because he had been angry and yet turned his wrath aside from the suppliant and instead showed comfort to that suppliant. His anger had turned. And this individual wrote these words that I think are worth reflecting on again and again. In that thought, he said, lies the heart of redemption. His anger is turned away. In that thought lies the heart of redemption. But in the second chapter at the beginning, we see the beginning of the good news, if you will. The beginning of the glad tidings. And we read these words, and it shall come to pass in the latter days at the mountain of Jehovah's house, shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. 
That's the good tidings. And this is the word that Isaiah saw. We read in the beginning, the very first verse, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He saw the word. How often do we read that, that the prophet saw the word? How do you see a word? But Isaiah saw the word concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He saw it. It was a vision. This word was a vision in some incredible way. It was a, a revelation of the word concerning Judah and Jerusalem. We heard reference this morning to 1 Peter in the first chapter that I think is relevant, conspicuously relevant to this matter. First Peter 1 at verse 10 and 11, concerning which salvation the prophets sought and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what time or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did point unto when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow them. Is this not what Isaiah is doing? Is it not the spirit of Christ in Isaiah that enabled him to see this word? To see how God's anger would be turned away. To see it beginning to be turned away. Even in these, these rather dark uh, and cloudy expressions, these metaphors and figures, but pointing to salvation, even as was brought out again this morning, all nations shall flow unto it. That's Abrahamic language, is it not? All nations. We see promises given. And we were, we were reminded also about Paul speaking in Galatians. When he said, it came to me this mystery came to me through the revelation of Jesus Christ. How did that happen? What transpired? Was it not perhaps similar to what we're reading here? The word that Paul the apostle saw concerning Christ? Did he see a word? What is this revelation that he had? He was very singular in that, was he not, among the apostles. And we read here the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That, that remark regarding that revelation by Paul in Galatians 1.12. And then again, speaking of Christ being revealed in him in verses 15 and 16. Uh, are these not revelations or visions or things similar to what Isaiah may have experienced? We don't know. I'm not claiming that we know, but I'm just putting them side by side and saying here we have this vision, this word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. And I see similarities in what was set before us this morning in both the Sunday school and in the worship service. But after the denunciations and the rebukes of chapter one that we referred to, 
we see these prophetic promises beginning to be unfolded here in this second chapter. And as I suggested, they may still be dark and they may be cloudy and mysterious, but they are there. God's anger is beginning to be turned away. And we read, if we continue, about the haughtiness of men being bowed down. That's, that's a good sign that God is, has begun to work. This is the way of his dealings. Men are humbled. Men are bowed down. Men are brought low. Men are convicted of sin. As one old preacher said years ago in my hearing, when water starts running uphill, you know somebody's been doing something. And when you see men, proud men being humbled, proud men being bowed down and brought low, it's a good sign that God has begun to work. And these are things that begin to bring about this song in Isaiah's heart that is the content of the chapter under consideration, the 12th chapter. The song of Moses comes to mind. They were saved, were they not? Through the Red Sea, the children of Israel in Exodus, they were spared even as the waters came back down and drowned Pharaoh and all his host. They were afraid. They were standing on the shore and watching the Egyptians coming at them. And what was the word of promise that they were given? God said, fear ye not, stand still. And see the salvation of Jehovah, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. I love that language. Ye shall see them again no more forever. Jehovah will fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Truly, we should sing with those that were spared through the Red Sea. We should sing that song of Moses and, and Miriam and, and those people that were saved. Who is like unto thee, O Jehovah, among the gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Has he not done wonders in our lives? Do we reflect on that? Do we consider that? Do we thank and praise him? We'll never thank him and praise him enough. But do we attempt to thank him and praise him every day? Thou stretchest out thy right hand. The earth swallowed them. Has he not swallowed up our sins? Cast them into the depths of the sea. Put them as far away as the east is from the west. How much cause for thanksgiving do we have? Thou in thy loving kindness hast led the, hast led the people that thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength to thy holy habitation. Can we not... Join our hearts with every word of that song of Moses. Redemption results in praise. If it does not, something is terribly wrong. One man penned these words, the only way to run from God is to run to him. <coughs> the only way to run from God is to run to him. In that day, in that day, Isaiah has said, 
in that chapter 2 of Isaiah. And look at what we read in the 10th verse. Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust from before the terror of Jehovah and from the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be brought low and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and Jehovah alone shall be exalted in that day. It's speaking of both those that are, that, that are fearful of God's wrath and those that are rejoicing that the wrath is passing over them. It's the same as what Paul has said in, uh, to the church at Thessalonica in his second epistle. If so be that it is a righteous thing with God to recompense affliction to them that afflict you, he said, and to you that are afflicted, rest with us at the revelation of Jesus from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire, rendering vengeance to them that know not God and to them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus, who shall suffer punishment, even eternal destruction from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That doesn't sound like good news, but listen to the rest. Listen to the rest of the story. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all them that believed. God is angry because Zion is corrupt, but yet she is to be redeemed. Jehovah's universal reign is spoken of. Israel's idolatry must cease, is commanded. Judah's rulers have been denounced, but a remnant is to be saved. A remnant is to be saved. In the seventh chapter, one of Isaiah's sons, Shir Yashub, it's probably not the proper pronunciation, but Shir Yashub, Meaning a remnant shall return in Isaiah 7.3. A remnant refers to a promise. A promise given in the previous chapter in chapter 6. When the prophet cried out, how long? And he answered, until cities be waste without inhabitant and houses without man and the lands become utterly waste and Jehovah have removed men far away and the forsaken places be many in the midst of the land and if there be yet a tenth in it, it also shall in turn be eaten up as a terebinth and as an oak whose stock remaineth when they are felled. So the holy seed is the stock thereof. There's a remnant. All this, all this terror, all this wrath, all this destruction, but there's a remnant that shall be saved. The holy seed is the stock thereof. The holy seed is the remnant thereof. In the English translations, the New American Standard, the New International Version, the English Standard Version, the New King James Version, it's rendered the holy seed is its stump. The stump, the stock, it brings to mind. I thought Chuck might be reading Daniel 4 tonight, but he did read about Nebuchadnezzar. And it brings to mind that next vision or dream of Nebuchadnezzar's about the tree. And he, and he asked Daniel to come and interpret. And Daniel tells him that you're the tree and that 
the tree, the branches are going to be hewn down and the trunk's going to be chopped down all the way to the ground almost. But the stump, the stump remains. Leave the stump of its roots in the earth. The stump, the stump, the remnant, the seed has always remained because it's all part of God's plan. It's all part of God's plan to save unto himself a people through the blood of the capital S seed, Jesus Christ. Thine anger is turned away. Isaiah is speaking, I believe, as though his own contemporaries, the ones that he is speaking face to face with at the time, that they would experience this redemption. Actually, he is depicting the people of the future, one has said, in terms of his contemporaries. He's using terminology that would speak of his contemporaries, but he's speaking of the future. He's prophesying, he's predicting. He's employed something of a synecdoche where a part is taken for the whole or put for the whole. He speaks to the entire nation here as one man, thou. And in doing so, he has spoken to the Israel of God. There is going to be a division between the righteous and the wicked. That's clear. Between the godly and the ungodly, between the believer and the unbeliever, between those who walk in the broad way and the remnant, those who walk in the narrow way between those who have oil in their lamps and those who do not, between the wheat and the tares. Believers, therefore, John Calvin wrote, believers, therefore, first acknowledge their guilt and next ascribe it to the mercy of God that they have been freed from their distresses. Is this not concomitant with with what we find in that lovely verse in Malachi 3.16, then they that feared Jehovah spake one with another, and Jehovah hearkened and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared Jehovah and that thought upon his name. In each of these instances, the subjects are the elect of God, the remnant. Those fearing Jehovah are are one with those acknowledging their guilt and ascribing salvation to God alone. This was precisely the case with David as we find expressed frequently in his Psalms. Psalm 30, for example, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. This is the contrast, the sovereign contrast between chastisement and punishment. David's famous 51st Psalm speaks well to that issue because it was a Psalm of confession. This confession belongs properly to the godly and the elect. But he said, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see the difference between chastening and punishment. All those experiences of David that that he went through because of his sin, they were the chastening end of God. But our Lord Jesus Christ endured the punishment for David's sins as he has endured the punishment for the sins of each of us that are in Christ here tonight. When we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. There's a huge distinction between chastening and condemnation. You remember Paul's words in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that what? That are in Christ Jesus. And then to the Corinthians, he's speaking of these folk and saying that they may not perish along with the world. Christ has died for them. The Bible never teaches that the wrath of God is removed in that it is simply turned to love. The wrath of God was not removed and turned into comfort. If that were the case, it would present a low picture of the integrity of God. God is wrathful against sin. And that wrath must be visited upon sin. The gospel is, of course, that the wrath of God rested upon God's Son. <clears throat> and it will never rest upon those for whom Christ died. Well might darkness fall upon the land for three hours when the Son of God died. A shade was drawn upon that transaction between the Father and the Son that culminated in that mournful cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God has provided remission of sin and reconciliation with him through the blood of the Lamb of God, his only begotten Son. And God has commended his love toward us, Paul tells us, in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. We lay hold upon the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. We lay hold upon the risen Lamb. We lay hold upon the risen Lion of the tribe of Judah. We lay hold upon the Root of David. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed by himself, proclaimed by his apostles, proclaimed by his preachers today in every faithful church. He is our Passover, is he not? For our Passover also hath been sacrificed, even Christ, we read. And according to the law, the writer, author, preacher of the Hebrews, says, I may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and apart from shedding of blood there is no remission. Without shedding of blood there is no remission. And God said in Exodus at that first Passover, when I see the blood, 
I will pass over you. A lamb must be slain. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at evening, we read. The lamb must be slain that God's anger be turned away from us. The lamb must be slain. Isaiah 12. And may it be true of each and every one of us to be able to say this, and and in that day, thou shalt say, I will give thanks unto thee, O Jehovah, for though thou wast angry with me, thy anger is turned away. Let us pray. (coughs) O Lord our God, our Father, we have we have heard it said that Paul never got over the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that was showered upon him. May it be true of each and every one of us tonight. We ask through Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd stand for the benediction, it's from the 32nd Psalm. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom Jehovah imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no God. Amen.